Now, as you know from the invitation, this is the third annual lecture in the Hazel and Fulton Chauncey Lecture Series. Hazel and Fulton Chauncey were longtime VHS members who had a special interest in the scholarly work of this institution. Their sons, Edwin Hall and Warren Fulton Chauncey, established this lecture series as a way to encourage that same appreciation for history and history education in others, especially in young people. Warren Chauncey brought the idea to us a couple of years ago and we immediately jumped on knowing that his requirement, now this was very, he was very strict about this. He said, now the lecture either, either has to be about the Civil War, Virginia, or Southern history. And we thought, we probably can accommodate <laughs> those restrictions. So we were delighted to be able to meet the requirements. And unfortunately, Edwin Hall Chauncey, Warren's brother, passed away in February of 2011, just as we were planning the first lecture. But I'm very pleased that this year, as the last couple of years, his brother Warren is with us, and I'd like to ask him to stand for a show of our appreciation for his dedication to history. Thank you very much, Warren, for adding a highlight to the VHS calendar. And I'd also like to ask everyone in the crowd, because I know there are a few who has contributed to the Chauncey Lecture Series to stand to help us mark this, um, this uh, wonderful evening. Who else? Has anyone given to this lecture fund in the, in the crowd? All right, they're not even standing. They're going to raise their hands, but we still owe them a, a, a round of applause. And I just want you to know that your contributions to the fund, and in particular, uh, your tribute gifts for Edwin have made tonight's lecture possible, so thank you very, very much. And now on to tonight's program. For more than a century, the enduring feud between the Hatfields and the McCoys has been American shorthand for passionate, unyielding, and even violent confrontation. And yet, despite numerous articles, books, television shows, and feature films, no one has ever told the in-depth, true story of this legendarily fierce and far-reaching clash in the mountains of Appalachia. Best-selling author Dean King draws upon years of research, including the discovery of previously lost and ignored documents and interviews with descendants of both families. He finally gives us the full unvarnished tale, one that is vastly more enthralling than the myth. Filled with bitter quarrels, reckless affairs, treacherous betrayals, relentless mercenaries, and courageous detectives, Dean's new book, The Feud, is the riveting story of two frontier families struggling for survival within the narrow confines of an unforgiving land. It is a formative American tale, and through it, we are compelled to wonder about the lengths to which we might go in order to defend our own honor, loyalties, and livelihoods. Dean King is a Richmond native, and he's a prolific and award-winning author, an inventive documentary filmmaker, a superb, as you will see, raconteur, a generous supporter of the fraternity of writers everywhere, but especially here in Central Virginia. And last but not least, he's a good friend of the VHS. Many of you heard him speak here before, including a banner lecture five years ago. And I think you'll see from that and tonight's lecture that the range of his topics is indeed sweeping from the harrowing story of American sailors shipwrecked on the North African coast and captured by Arab slave traders, to the saga of women who made the epic long march with Mao Zedong's army in the 1930s, and now to the dark heart of Appalachia. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome to Dean King, who will speak to us tonight on a fascinating topic, the feud. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming out, and thank you to all those who um, support the Chauncey Lecture. It's a real privilege to be able to do this. Uh, I have just been on a, a bit of an odyssey over the past month. I have spoken at McCoy family reunions, Hatfield family reunions, <laughs> and Hatfield-McCoy joint family reunions. So before I get started, I want to know how many Hatfields and McCoys are out there. <laughs> Raise your hand. Come on. There's got to be somebody in the audience. Okay. Well, I won't have to uh, be on edge tonight, maybe. 
How many of you watched the miniseries? Okay, that's, that's a good show of hands. All right, now I want you to forget all that because we're going to try to do something that's a little more factual. But actually, I, I really like that, the miniseries. I think they did a great job at, at generating interest in this American Roots story. And of course, you know, being television or movies are going to compress characters, compress plot and, to make something super compelling on film, but you need to go to documentaries or, or books to, to get the facts. And, um, and so I think they did a good job of generating the interest. They did a few things that, that uh, wasn't so pleased with and the families weren't either, and I'll mention them in a little bit. Um, but here is... Uh, uh, one of the things they did to promote the show, which I thought was really amazing, that's a hologram of, of bad Jim Vance there uh, in the subway in New York City with the lantern. They had actual real lanterns in the subways and really created a blockbuster uh, a show that, that changed the History Channel and is uh, going to change television, really. This is Randall McCoy, the patriarch of the McCoy family. Here's Devil Ants, Patriarch of the Devil of the uh, Hatfield family, and probably the most recognizable face of the feud. Uh, here he is a little later. He, he became a celebrity through the course of the feud, and you can see he's got the bandolero on there and his gun and the, and the beautiful horse. Uh, he was a formidable guy. Uh, and I like to show this picture. This is a tree, not in California, but in West Virginia. And that's what they looked like back in the day, uh, around the time of the Civil War. And after the Civil War, they were used to rebuild uh, America after the Civil War. They would cut them down along the Tug Fork. The Tug Fork separated Kentucky and Virginia, then now West Virginia, and, uh, and to the sawmills on the Ohio River. So Devil Lance uh, had a, a, a timbering business. And uh, the McCoys also uh, worked in the timbering business. That also is, is a tree from that time, 13 feet in diameter. I like to show those pictures to sort of uh, show you that it was a different place. It was a different time. You know, the, the mores and um, the way these people responded to certain things, you know, this was a different era. So I like to, um, I like to go back and try to rethink things from the point of view of, of the day. Of course, hand in hand with the timbering uh, went moonshining. And this is a purported McCoy moonshine camp, though. There's no great documentation for a lot of these photos, I have to admit. Um, but you can see they're holding pistols over here. Uh, the timber camps and the moonshining camps were notoriously dangerous. Outlaws uh, came out there that could make a living and be somewhat uh, secure from the, the law. So everybody tended to be armed in these camps. This is the Tug Fork. Um, back in the day as well. That's the river that separates the two states and where the feud occurred. <laughs> that, that's how it looks today. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're very proud of their history, so you'll see a lot of Hatfield-McCoy stuff. You can see how the mountain is um, tapered back there. This is a place of mountaintop removal, and, in fact, in, in the very uh, holler where Devil Ants was born, uh, the mountaintop has been removed, and they filled in there some. And, and so um, that is, is sort of the, uh, the current uh, thing that's going on that's sort of primary in their uh, society today and their culture. Uh, that is also today. That's in the town of Matewan. <laughs> that's Arabella Hatfield's license plate. She is a descendant of Cap Hatfield, uh, probably the most violent of Devil Lance's sons. And um, I, I now have the feud from Virginia. And so when I was there at uh, Logan, uh, Chief Logan State Park speaking, we parked next to each other, <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Uh, and this is a, a current hat field. I've uh, become something that uh, no one here should aspire to. I'm now a reality show producer. <laughs> and um, they, I, I went in wanting to make a documentary, but uh, History Channel said they saw the sizzle reel and they said, uh, well, we love this stuff, but we don't want to make a documentary. We want to make a reality show. So we used the families that I um, interviewed for the book, and we also did a casting call. We had Hatfields come from uh, Texas, New York, and Florida, and, and a great moment there was uh, we had 150 Hatfields and McCoys, and we painstakingly interviewed them, but they were all in one room. And finally, one of the PAs came in and said, whose idea was it to put 150 Hatfields and McCoys in one room for eight hours? <laughs> Things are getting a bit testy in there, but, uh, 
But uh, again, this is, uh, the Hatfields and McCoys still live in this area about an hour and a half south of Charleston along the Tug River uh, in Kentucky and West Virginia. So that's nothing unusual to see a, a Hatfield sign like that or a, a McCoy sign for a business. This is the Tug Fork, a beautiful section of the Tug Fork. And it's the first place I went after I did my book research and, and some digging and uh, I knew I needed to go you know, see all these places. What I didn't know how to do was break the ice with the Hatfields and McCoys. My family is originally from West Virginia, and um, I had done my previous two books about Africa and China, and, uh, and so I, I was looking for something to bring me back home. My parents had passed away, uh, but once there's West Virginia in your blood, it never leaves. There's a certain mystery and beauty and toughness to the place that, that stays, and so I wanted to reconnect with it. I started looking into the history of the feud after my brother-in-law, who's a publisher, uh, suggested it and, and found out that I really thought there needed to be a new version of it, and that there was a lot of great material to work with. So this was the first place I came. This is um, where Thacker Creek meets Tug Fork. And uh, uh, one of the McCoys was murdered here. A guy named Jeff McCoy was shot by the, the Hatfields. And uh, so I had these two uh, private forestry rangers take me there. They weren't in uniforms. I had my daughter, Hazel, who was 16 at the time, and she's 18 now, just graduated from St. Catharines. But uh, we went down on, on this uh, little uh, delta where the creek hits the, the river. And we heard an, an ATV come winding behind us, and it went up the river. And we saw some heads looking down the river at us. And then they got back on their ATV, and they went up around the bend, and then all of a sudden somebody started shooting at us. And they were, they were shooting, they were hitting the water right about 15 yards out there, and it wasn't just one or two warning shots, they shot seven or eight times. Uh, they could have hit us if they wanted to. These were warning shots, clearly. But uh, the, the forestry rangers were very cool. Now, if they had been uniformed, I doubt these people would have shot at us if, if they had been um, you know, state uh, forestry rangers. But uh, they, they said, uh, Dean, I think we better get Hazel in here. So we circled up around Hazel and waited a couple beats, and they said, okay, now let's just walk off. It, you know, this is, this is that kind of place. It's a feudal kind of place, and these guys have to work there. They couldn't turn tail and run. They wouldn't be able to work there anymore. They had to show their courage, and it was a real lesson for me in uh, what, what this area is really like and what it might have been like. It was, it was kind of a, a shocker, but a good one. It also had a great, great benefit. You know, um, as a writer, I spent a lot of time behind the computer and, you know, maybe have a bit of a, a, a nerd reputation among my children. But after I got shot at, that's my daughter Hazel. She gave me a big hug and a smile. So it worked out all right for everybody. This is Harmon McCoy. He was killed at the end of the Civil War in 1864. People uh, argue about whether this started the feud or not. And until now, I think the prevailing thought has, has been that it didn't start the feud. And one thing you're going to learn as I talk and as you read this book is it's going to get a lot more confusing before it gets clear. You know, what I wanted to do was to remove this from that um, sort of cold, hard legend in the black and white thing. I mean, let's face it, a lot of us just thought these were toothless hillbillies you know, mo making moonshine and taking pot shots at each other, I think, before we, we started talking about this again. And it couldn't be further from the truth, as, as I discovered in, in, in detail as I researched it. But this is Harmon McCoy. The McCoys and Hatfields were on both sides of the Tug Fork. And in fact, in 1849, they petitioned the state of Virginia, saying, we're a community. We're a single community here. We want to be on the same side of the state line. But the river divided them because you know, they, they worked together. They were intermarried extensively. And, um, but the, the, and there are lots of Hatfields and McCoys signed this petition. The petition failed. And I think if it had succeeded, there never would have been a feud. But what happened in the war, of course, again, nothing simple. You had Kentucky was neutral at the beginning, then went Union. Uh, it was Virginia on the other side of the border until 1863, of course, when, when West Virginia seceded. Uh, and they went Union, but everybody in that area of West Virginia stayed Confederate. Uh, and, and so you had uh, opposing forces there, and they weren't just, you know, when they fought, they knew each other. They raided each other's farms, and when they killed each other, it was somebody, it was a neighbor who was killing somebody. So it got very bitter there. This was a McCoy who was in the Union Army, Army on Peter Creek, and a lot of the prevailing history was wrong about this. It, it said that, um, that he was an anomaly, that he was one of the few Union soldiers over there, so when he was killed by the Hatfields, 
The McCoys didn't really care because they were Confederates. That's not true. The only McCoy on that side of the river who was Confederate was Randall. He, uh, he actually fought alongside of, of Devil Ants at one point. But so they say, well, that didn't start the feud because Randall's the main McCoy feudist and this guy was Union. But what you see, and it's very typical of a feud cycle, is that uh, while he didn't get avenged, his death didn't get avenged right away, 20 years later, when the feud really heats up, it's this guy's sons who are in the posse hunting down Hatfields. And so it's not just a simple um, battle or war between these two uh, families, Randall's family and Devil Ants's. There are various parts of the family. You'll have uh, parts of the family falling in love with each other, parts of them killing each other, parts of them doing business together, and, and, and so it, it was very complex. These are the guys who actually killed uh, uh, Harmon McCoy. This is Devil Ants again on a hunting trip with uh, Jim, Jim Vance there. This is Preacher Ants Hatfield. So you've got William Anderson Hatfield on one side of the river who is Devil Ants, and you've got William Anderson Hatfield on the other side of the, the river who's Preacher Ants. And he fought for the Union while Devil Ants fought for the Confederacy. The next big event in the feud was a dispute over Razorback hogs. And I really didn't want to lead off with that because it immediately takes you down to what you know, is kind of a very base level. But um, when you get back and look at it, these hogs were really important to them at the time. To get through the winter in this remote area, you needed your hogs. You needed to be able to slaughter your hogs and use everything, as they say, but the squeal. And so um, Randall accused a Hatfield of, of um, stealing his hogs. Well, it fell on Preacher Ants Hatfield to try uh, this case. He knew this was a no-win situation. He was going to anger one family or the other. So what he did was he put together a jury, six McCoys, six Hatfields. That also had its challenges. Uh, but, but, but he was a smart guy. He knew that, that it probably wouldn't all fall on his shoulders. And so what happened was, and it's going to get complicated here, uh, you got a guy named William Staten who um, testified for the Hatfields on the Hatfield side. And you've got a guy named Selkirk McCoy who then, who was part of the jury, who sided with the Hatfields. He worked for Devil Ants. William Staten, who testified against Randall, was married to McCoy, so they thought he was McCoy-leaning, but he had two daughters who were married to Hatfields. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's bad. All right, this guy's squirrel-hunting Sam McCoy. And he's one of my favorite characters in the whole feud. He wrote a history which is wildly inaccurate, the only, only feud is to actually write a memoir of the feud. He was 6'4 uh, to 6'8, according to various accounts, always went barefooted and loved to shoot squirrels. He had two rifles, and his son would later seriously say that with one rifle, he had shot 38,000 squirrels, and with the other rifle, he had shot 40,000 squirrels. <laughs> you know, believe that or not, I'm not sure. So, he wrote this history of the feud. One thing he fails to, to, to mention is that he actually murdered young Bill Staten. He just kind of left that out of his account. Um, but he killed uh, Bill, Bill Staten Sr.'s son. Uh, and so here is another flashpoint in the feud. You've got the, the murder at the Civil War. And this happens 14 years later in 1878. Uh, and, and so now you've got a Hatfield, somebody on the Hatfield side getting murdered. This guy actually uh, went back and forth. He was a McCoy, but he was friends with the Hatfields. And Wall Hatfield, Devil Ants' brother, tried him and acquitted him of the murder. Uh, this is John C. Hatfield. He's the playboy of the Hatfield family right there. <laughs> he was a, a, a bootlegger uh, for Devil Ants' moonshine. And in 1880... Uh, on election day in 1880, he met Rosanna McCoy. They fell in love. They were here. This is a reconstruction of the cabin, the Jerry Hatfield house, where the polling took place in Kentucky. Now, there were more Hatfields in Kentucky than there were in West Virginia. The West Virginia Hatfields would come over uh, because this is what you do, did it at polling time. You, um, you were up these remote hollers. And so uh, at elections, you would dress up in your finery. Uh, you'd take baked goods. Uh, you would go there, courting took place, business deals happened, uh, you, uh, you, of course moonshine was part of it, they would take moonshine and drink and fights often happened. But on this occasion in 1880, 
John C. and Rosanna fell in love. They uh, went over back over to West Virginia. Uh, Devil Lance wouldn't let them get married, but Rosanna got pregnant, and eventually she went back to her family, and John C. did the very valiant thing of then marrying her cousin. <laughs> so um, you can imagine that uh, created a little more um, feudal tension among the families. So um, in 1882, at the same place, uh, we have an event that really escalated the feud. Uh, Devil Lance's brother, Ellison Hatfield, a Civil War hero, uh, was, got into a fight with three McCoy brothers, Randall's sons. Uh, they stabbed uh, him 27 times and shot him. Somehow he managed to live for two more days. The Hatfields got him, took him back over to West Virginia. The McCoy brothers were arrested by Kentucky Hatfields. They were uh, in the process of taking the brothers to Pikeville to put them in jail where they would be tried. Well, Wall Hatfield came over and stopped them and said, no, we want to try them here uh, where we have witnesses. And, and, um, and so there was a debate going on, and then Devil Lance came over with a whole posse and said, no more debate. I'm taking them back to West Virginia. If my brother lives then uh, they can be uh, taken to Pikeville for trial. But if my brother doesn't live, we're going to try him right here. So Ellison Hatfield dies. Uh, the trial uh, is quite perfunctory. And uh, they take the, the McCoy brothers back into Kentucky, where they, uh, they take them to this pawpaw patch right here, and they execute them. They then go back into West Virginia, creating this legal uh, conundrum. Uh, here are the brothers. And again, this is a picture said to be the three brothers. It came from the Kentucky Historical Society, but the provenance of this photograph is not documented. Uh, but but it, it, it's a pretty graphic uh, uh, visual on, on what it might have been like. Um, but it is said to be the three brothers. So now <clears throat> the Kentucky courts hand down indictments for all these guys in West Virginia but they're not about to cross that river and go into the Hatfield hollers and try to arrest these guys. They would not have come out alive, and it would have been illegal. So you have a sort of a stalemate for a number of years. There's some skirmishing and, and bickering going, going on back and forth. Uh, the Hatfields half-heartedly try to kill Randall uh, at one point. Um, and, and here is what they're fighting over. This, these are the, the Hatfield hollers right up here today. Uh, and, and this is where I went um, uh, on a subsequent trip after getting shot at. Um, this is the town of Matewan. You probably heard of Matewan from the John Sayles movie. Uh, there was something called the Matewan Massacre in 1920 that had to do with the coal mining wars. A guy named Sid Hatfield was uh, the sheriff of this town. Well, I went back here, and a guy named Pat, uh, Pat Garrett uh, has a, a little hotel there, and I said, Pat, Pat since passed away, but I said, Pat, I need to meet some Hatfields. You know, I don't want to get shot at again. And so Pat says, well, I got just the guy for you. He will show you around. And he introduced me to this guy, Scotty May. Scotty May lives up Mate Creek Holler, where all the Hatfields come from. And Scotty said, yeah, I'll show you around, sure. And so we go down, and uh, we meet up with his buddy, Alvin Harmon, right there. And Alvin comes out of his house, and he, uh, he straps a chainsaw onto the front of his ATV. He's got a, a pistol and a holster on, on his side, and he puts a big jar of moonshine into his saddlebag. You know, the, the essentials for a good ATV ride. <laughs> and they don't know yet what a city slicker I am. I'd never been on an ATV. So we're going up a steep pitch, and they're telling me, you know, there are three sort of economic engines in the area. You've got coal, timber, and you've got the Hatfield-McCoy ATV trails. So in that town of Matewan, they have ordinances where you can drive ATVs on the streets. It's actually an ATV bed and breakfast. They all cater to ATVs. These guys say, we're not going on any of those Hatfield-McCoy trails. You know, we're going on outlaw trails. These are our trails you know, that, that nobody goes on. So we're going up a trail like this. And I don't know enough to lean forward on the ATV. I'm leaning back, which isn't a good idea. And the thing's going up on two wheels, and he's screaming at me. Well, by the time we get to the top of the ridge where they're taking me, they're taking me to Devil Ant's Rock where uh, Jim Vance is later murdered. And we get up there. It's a very narrow ridge. There are bushes all around. And you can look down. You know, you don't have to take a step. You look down one side, you're looking down a holler. You look down the other side, you're looking down a holler. And you can see why they went up here because, you know, you could go up there, hide out. And if a posse's coming up one holler, you go down another. And if somebody's trying to get away from you, you can see everything going on. Well, 
um, I've already been shot at, and Alvin comes up and gets right at my face, and he goes, you ain't a cop, are you? <laughs> and, and I've seen the gun, and, and I'm like, no, no, I, I'm just a writer, I promise, which I'm not sure is any better in his eyes than I'm, than I'm a writer. But he said, good, and went back to the saddlebag and pulled out the moonshine, and we all had a swig, and I was initiated into the brotherhood at that point. And, uh, and, and then we became great friends. There's Scotty on his ATV. Uh, there's Alvin coming up the hill. You can see the ATV further down there. Uh, they go over stuff like that all day, no problem. It, it, it's not a day, a day in, uh, on the trail unless somebody rolls over on their ATV, and I'm not kidding, and they don't wear helmets. But I, I wanted to go with them because I wanted to um, GPS map uh, all these sites. You know, the, the geography's changing because of the coal, uh, the coal mines and the strip mines. And, um, and also the people are, the generations are changing. And there, there are um, important uh, grave sites and battle sites all along these hills. And these people still know where they are. So I wanted to get them. I did a story for Popular Mechanics magazine. Some of that is up on the internet you can find. Um, so I think we, we got good positions on all the sites. But, you know, uh, the more I came, the more fun it was for them. And we, the, the groups got bigger and bigger. And, you know, we would roll around the hills. There'd be six or seven of these guys waiting for me when I got there. But they took great care of me and, and still do. I talk to Scotty May almost daily now. Um, we, we got to be great friends. On these outlaw trails, nobody really knows who, who owns them. There are a lot of wildcat timber people up there. And that's why they brought the chainsaw. You can see they, the, the timber people will cut a tree down across, along the trail so that you can't ride on it. Of course, they're, they're not having any of that. They take their saws up there. They just saw them up, and we push them over the side. <laughs> that's a rock house. When, the, when these pioneers, and, and I love telling uh, Richmonders that these were first families of Virginia right here. These were bedrock. You know, These guys were here early on. They fought in the Revolution. And, uh, but when they went out there, a lot of them were awarded land out there. Uh, they lived in these shallow caves they call rock houses. They would live in them for a while while they got their crops going and while they built their cabins. And, um, and then later they would use them to hide in during the Civil War. They called it laying out because they were so close to the enemy all the time. The men wouldn't sleep in their cabins. They had to sleep out in the woods. And they used them for hunting. And uh, they took me to one. Uh, this was uh, one they called Water Rock because there's a spring that comes up here. And this is way up on top of the mountain. Uh, and if you had water up there, you could hang out for as long as you wanted, pretty much. And they had campfires down here. And, um, but we walked out onto the, to the ledge out top and had a beautiful view and never knew this was here until we sort of bushwhacked our way down along the side and they showed it to me. So uh, it was really great to... to um, have that kind of exposure from the family. I don't think anybody's ever gotten to do that before that wasn't part of the family. And now they took me up on the devil's backbone. Uh, and this is looking right up Mate Creek here, where all the, the, this group of Hatfields and, and Scotty May's actually part of the Chafin family. The Chafin family, Vicey Chafin was Devil Lance's wife. They married in and those clans were very close. So up this, the, a coal mine actually owns this whole place. We had to sneak in here through a back route that they knew and climb up on this pinnacle. And this is where it's, it's legendarily said that Devil Lance uh, defended this point from a whole company of Union soldiers. And you can see how that is plausible from, from up there. Um, but you go up that holler and you, you can't get an idea. They live up the sides of these things, or the hollers they actually live in. And they're really steep, really remote, uh, and, and in some ways not a lot has changed over the years. You know, you have all the big plot points and one thing that I really wanted to do was, again, take this from that kind of cold, hard legend kind of um, uh, story to something that was real and uh, something where we can relate to the people and understand them. And so Scotty May and Alvin introduced me to a lot of locals. Um, this guy's family is descended from Devil Ants' youngest brother and from one of his daughters, and she kept a diary. Uh, not about the feud, but about life back I at that time. And she talked about, um, you know, the, the plants they used uh, for medicinal purposes, the, um, the pet owls they had, all kinds of great sort of human interest stuff that I could use to help um, bring these characters alive. She talked about the, you know, the, the, the hoots and hollers they used to warn each other when people were coming up the, the trails. And so that was, that was really, for me, that was the gold that I was looking for. This guy showed me up a, a holler, another one that, that has um, 
uh, mountaintop removal fill in it, but this is the gravestone of bad Frank Phillips. And, uh, and I, I wanted to come up here and GPS it. Beside that, that grave is another grave. So you remember John C. Uh, got Rosanna McCoy pregnant, jilted her, married her, her I'm sorry, got Rosanna, did I say Rosanna got Rosanna pregnant, uh, jilted her and married Nancy. Well, Bad Frank came in to hunt down Johncy. Johncy ran off to the west to hide out. Bad Frank ran off with Nancy, his <laughs> wife. They got married and had kids. And, and, those, and Nancy's buried right beside him. I, I should have a picture of that, but I don't. So again, you know, nothing's cut and dry or clear here. Uh, again, okay, so this is in Sarah Ann, uh, West Virginia. That's uh, a, a life-size statue of Devil Lance. I love showing that because when, after Devil Lance died, they, uh, they commissioned a, a sculptor to make a life-size statue out of Italian marble. And you can see it's you know, very nicely wrought. Devil Lance got wealthy in the timbering industry and in, um, by, by making moonshine. And um, so th these families had power. They had political power. And everything's about politics in this area, uh, even to this day. But so Devil Lance could deliver votes to politicians uh, from that area uh, and, and could really secure the area for a political friend. And the McCoys could do the same on the other side. And that's what gave them a lot of clout and what it made the, uh, the feud last longer because law enforcement didn't want to go in there and get them. That's a museum at the base of the hill there uh, at, the, at that really great cemetery. When I was there, it was still open. Uh, the, the woman who ran it has since died. She's a Hatfield. And now, um, I like to share this because now, uh, with all the attention that the miniseries has brought, and hopefully this book and this reality show that I'll tell you a little bit more about in a minute, um, people are making plans to change this, to put in a welcome center here so that to, and to put in some historical data and monuments and, and things. So um, I'm really hopeful that, uh, that this planning will, will come to fruition at various sites around the area because there is uh, a lot of history in this area that is really fabulous to see. Here I am in the, in the courthouse in Logan, uh, and these are the law order books, and there's a lot of great material in, in those. Uh, for instance, Devil Lance at one point had petitioned to be allowed to dam up the Tug Fork, which is pretty brazen because that's the river that separates the two states, and that's where the loggers take all their logs down um, every spring uh, to, to the Ohio River. And if he had a dam there, they were all going to have to deal with that. Uh, I, I believe that Devil Lance wanted to have that dam there so he could put a little mill in and mill his corn so that uh, he could make his moonshine a little bit e easier. And revenuers uh, zeroed in on millers because uh, you, you had to have milled corn to, to make the white lightning, and so they could go to the millers and, and they'd snoop around and try to figure out who's milling a lot of corn more than you'd need otherwise. And so that would just make Devil Lance a little bit safer if, if he could do that. So there's a lot of neat stuff in here about, also it, it, it talks a lot about the different uh, political offices that the family held and, and sort of lead, lends a lot of credence to um, how powerful they really were in the area. Talked a lot about the Hatfields. This is a woman named Betty Howard in Pikeville. She is the leading, leading McCoy genealogist and I probably communicated with her more than anybody, more than a thousand emails. Uh, and she's a wonderful woman, a fierce McCoy partisan so, um, you know, I had to take uh, with a grain of salt what each side said at every, about every event. And so I, I like to say that the feud's over, but we're still feuding about the feud. And, uh, and I'll tell you, um, they have strong points of view, and I'm still feeling it today. It, this is Everett Johnson at the um, Big Sandy Cultural Center in Pikeville. Uh, he is a wonderful guy and shared a lot of the material they have. That's a period gun he's got there. And uh, he would get the old newspapers off the wall and photocopy them for me and, and showed me all kinds of great stuff. Okay, so this is Perry Klein. Remember, we had that, uh, we had the West, the Devil Ants and his men had executed the McCoys. They'd gone back to West Virginia, have indictments handed down against them, but nobody's going to go in there and get them. Well, Perry Klein is uh, part of the McCoy family. He's back in Pikeville. He delivers Pike County to the new governor of Kentucky. <coughs> governor's thankful. He says, what can I do for you? And uh, Perry Klein says, well, I'm glad you asked. What I want is I want a price on the heads of these Hatfields that, that will make it so that the bounty hunters will go in and get them. 
and he got that price. Uh, in the meantime, <clears throat> the Hatfields are feeling the pressure. You know, they've got, they, they got people everywhere, and they know what's going on. So as the pressure's rising, they decide, you know what we need to do? We need to kill Randall McCoy once and for all. And so on New Year's Day of 1888, they mounted a raid. They went over to kill Randall McCoy. They figured they'd kill the patriarch, then you know, the, 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 the pressure will, will um, be alleviated. Uh, they don't kill Randall. Instead, they kill his son, Calvin, and they kill his daughter, Alifair. And this is a watershed moment in the feud. You don't kill an innocent woman. Uh, so public sentiment turned against the Hatfields at that point. Not only that, uh, this, the feud now became not just a local regional squabble, it became something that was national. And the New York newspapers would send reporters down there, and suddenly you were getting headlines. Uh, this was the time, this very same time, the Jack the Ripper murders were going on in London. And so nationally and internationally, you would see headlines side by side, Jack the Ripper and the Hatfields and McCoys. This is Bad Frank, uh, whose grave I was at a, a little while earlier. Bad Frank was kind of the strong man for Perry Klein. And by the way, Perry Klein, who I think was a very upstanding man, he's the guy who gets the bad rap in the miniseries. It's, I think the worst thing the miniseries did was turn him in, into a villain when I really think he was the most upstanding guy in the feud. What had happened was the Hatfields tried to smear him. They tried to bribe him. And then they told the governors that he was taking bribes. And so if you read the Hatfield histories, you could very easily paint him as a sleazy lawyer type. But I think those are false, and I make that argument in, in my book that uh, I don't believe, I think that was just a smear campaign. And his, after the feud, he, he did some, some really neat things as well. But he did have this guy who was his strong arm, Bad Frank Phillips. You, you have this murder on New Year's Day. Bad Frank says, I don't care uh, if I don't have the right legal documents. We can't have this anymore. We can't have Hatfields coming over here and murdering Kentucky citizens and nothing happening. He gets a posse. He goes into Kentucky. I mean, he goes into West Virginia. He hunts down eight Hatfields. He, he uh, arrests them, takes them over to Kentucky. He kills one uh, Hatfield, and he instigates something called the Battle of Grapevine Creek. So you have all this violence going on. On the political front, the governor of Kentucky has been uh, <clears throat> castigating the governor of, of West Virginia, saying, you should uh, allow us to indict these Hatfields and bring them over to Kentucky to try them. He's been doing it for years, and, but, but the West Virginia governor is never going to do that. He has nothing to gain by sending West Virginians over to Kentucky to be tried. And so now he's got his own ammo. He's like, oh, okay, now you're sending people over here. You're arresting and illegally and kidnapping Hat, you know, West Virginia citizens, taking them over to Kentucky, and you're, you're murdering our citizens and, and starting gunfights. So now indictments coming down against Bad Frank and all the guys in Kentucky. And meanwhile, you've got uh, a battle going on in court. Uh, the West Virginia governor has tried uh, to get writs of habeas corpus to have those West Virginia uh, prisoners freed because they were illegally arrested. What happens, uh, and, and this, was one, this was one of the um, Hatfields, this is Wall Hatfield, Devil Lance's brother, who says he turned himself in. But one way or the other, he was arrested, put in jail. And he was a, he was a um, justice of the peace and uh, a very, one of the most fascinating characters in the feud. Um, but in, in the meantime, so we got this court case going on, and uh, it goes all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And I don't think pe most people knew that there was a Supreme Court case that resulted from the feud. But what it said was it sort of sided uh, with Kentucky. It said that it didn't matter how um, the prisoners, the fugitives, were delivered to a courtroom. The court had the right to try them because there were warrants for their arrest in Kentucky uh, for, for murder. Uh, now, the, if the arrest was, itself was illegal, then those people who had committed a crime could also be arrested and tried. And what that ended up doing was um, it allowed them to try these Hatfields. It meant that the states kept their, their bounties out on the men uh, in, in opposite states, and um, bounty hunters poured in this air, down into this area because they knew they could arrest somebody in West Virginia, take them over to Kentucky and get the bounty, or arrest somebody in Kentucky and, and do, do the opposite. So um, it really escalated the feud in 1888. When I first uh, started working on the feud, I wasn't really sure that I was going to be able to find a good guy. And uh, I wanted to try to find a good guy. I found Dan Cunningham early on. And he was a detective, a U.S. deputy marshal and detective. 
you won't see him in the miniseries at all, never mentioned. And you won't see him in many of the histories because most of them are from family perspectives. They didn't care about the detectives. They cared about their family's story. This guy had been involved in another feud in West Virginia where Clinch Valleyites from Virginia had come into his area in a uh, little north and east of Charleston. And um, during the Civil War, they had uh, taken up the rebel side, whereas his family had been uh, pro-Union. His father's killed in the war, and then these rebel sympathizers murder his brother, who was a U.S. deputy marshal, after the war. He's a school teacher at the time. He avows vengeance, uh, goes away, um, figures out how to, how to use a gun really well and fight and comes back and gets his vengeance. And then he comes down to uh, work on the Hatfield-McCoy feud as a U.S. deputy marshal and also as a private detective for the Eureka Detective Agency out of Charleston. Um, and I think that feud... Um, that other feud helps shed some light uh, about the, the impact of the Civil War on, um, on the McCoy feud as well. That, those, uh, that anger and tension that resulted from the war lingered. It, it, it lingered all the way up to the turn of the century. But it was still very much uh, alive and real for these generations. And sometimes it wasn't the generation who actually fought the war. It was that next generation who was even more violent than the, the ones who fought the war and who sometimes wanted to put it uh, behind them. So I mentioned the, uh, the, the newspaper men that came down there, and that was a, a part that really fascinated me. This, these were three very prominent newspaper men, and again, they've been left out of the history a lot because nobody really likes them. Uh, they, uh, they were called yellow journalists, so they just predated the yellow journalism uh, time, well, when, when that term was coined. But uh, this guy, James Creelman, was, was a pretty famous guy. He had uh, interviewed Sitting Bull, he had interviewed uh, a pope, and uh, in, in his biography, you'd always see that he also wrote about the Hatfields and McCoys. But his, what he wrote had never been incorporated into any history. Uh, and it turns out there was a reason for that. I went into his newspaper, the Herald, and searched for it. It turns out that um, there was no byline for his story, so no historians had ever found it. What happened to him, uh, he, he wrote in there, uh, and the Holy Grail was to get to Devil Lance's camp and to get an interview with Devil Lance. Well, as he's riding in, People are telling him, you don't want to go in there. You don't want to go in there. Turn around before it's too late. And finally, a guy with a slouch hat uh, in the rain rides up to him and says, you better turn around right now or this isn't going to end well. And Creelman tried to say, hey, I've come a long way. I'm just a reporter. I'm not a detective. You know, I have no re nothing to fear, no reason to turn around. Well, the guy rode off a couple hundred yards, got off of his horse, dismounted, took his rifle out and aimed it at Creelman and pulled the trigger. And at that moment, Creelman promised himself that if he didn't get hit, he would turn around and, and go back, uh, which he did. He went to Pikeville, and he interviewed those Hatfields who were in jail and the McCoys there and wrote his story from that. But I like to say that his purpose in the feud was to make me the second person to get shot at while reporting on the feud. <laughs> there were two other guys who went in there, too, John R. Spears and T.C. Crawford. They went in there a few months later in 1888 after that big house burning and the battles had happened and when it's national news and there's this feeding frenzy about it. T.C. Crawford went on in there, and they were rivals at the um, New York World and the New York Sun. And so T.C. Crawford published on one Sunday in November of 1888. John R. Spears published on the same Sunday. T.C. Crawford published on the next Sunday. Spears did not. T.C. Crawford published on the third Sunday. All three of those have been gathered in a book. Historians have used that book. John R. Spears' first Sunday uh, story was serialized in a magazine. Most historians have used that. Well, because he didn't publish on the second Sunday, people lost track of him. There was a third Sunday. John R. Spears published another 10,000 words in two stories in the paper, uh, which is, as far as I know, never been seen again since 1888 until I was able to dig it up. And there was a great, really great story in there. <clears throat> John R. Spears, when he rode in to Pikeville, was on a buckboard wagon, and all of a sudden a, a guy comes out and jumps on. What was Dan Cunningham, the detective? And Dan Cunningham's going to Pikeville to get his um, reward for arresting one of the Hatfields. They ride in together, and Cunningham, before they get into town, jumps off the buckboard and runs up a side street. And, but it's too late because uh, John R. Spears has already been seen with him. And so the McCoys come out and go, you're a detective. And they hate detectives. They don't even care if the detective's been hunting down Hatfields. So he had to try to prove that he wasn't a detective before he could get out of there. He does. He gets, he gets them on his side. And Randall's son, Jim, 
takes John R. Spears down into the feud area. Pikeville's about 30 miles away, down to the river. And, and at a certain point, Jim says, that's as far as I'll take you. I'm not going any closer. I can't risk getting shot. But he tells Spears all about Devil Ants' moonshining operation. And uh, this has never been known before, but Randall's son, Jim, worked in Devil Ants' moonshining operation. So you'll see in all the histories, they'll say, well, Devil Ants was a moonshiner and a bootlegger, but there's no, there's no, um, there are no facts associated with it. There's, uh, you know, no evidence. But here for the first time, Jim McCoy tells where he got his still, uh, what he paid for it, how he, where he took it, where he put it, what he made. He was famous for his Applejack, Apple Brandy that they made up there, and he also made White Lightning. So, um, so there, those details about his moonshining operation had been hidden for a long time. So. As the media came in, these guys got to be famous. Uh, and you can see that, that scoundrel on the end is not a Hatfield, he's a, a promoter. So he came in here and got a photograph, probably to sell as a postcard. But this is probably the most famous uh, image of the Hatfield family. These are uh, Devil Ants' sons. And you can see they're, they're heavily armed. This is after the feud. But Devil Ants' sons became doctors, lawyers, detectives, uh, he even had a nephew who became the governor of the state of West Virginia. His brother Elias's son, Henry D., who was there, raised in the feud, became a, a governor of the state of West Virginia, a doctor in a governor of the state of West Virginia. These two guys over here, Randall had five children killed during the feud, Randall and his wife Sally. Devil Ants had none killed. Uh, and he was, he was kind of a, he was very charismatic. He was a, a, a prankster. Kids loved him. Uh, everybody loved him. He was a storyteller. Well, these two sons over here, Elias and Troy, um, right at the in, end of the feud, the railroads came in. They were coming in to get the coal and timber out in more efficient ways. And uh, they thought, well, they needed protection for their railroads. And there were a lot of bad guys out there in these hills and for the, the coal mine paymasters. And so they said, well, who better to hire than a couple of Hatfields? Because they'll be on our side. They're, they're tough guys, and they won't be attacking us. So they hired Elias and Troy, and Elias and Troy thought that was a good idea for about seven or eight years. They were good guys. And then they, I guess they decided that was boring, so they, they decided they'd become bad guys. And they put masks on, and they went and robbed the payroll master they were supposed to be protecting. And they, they framed their boss, who was a Baldwin of the Baldwin Feltz Detective Agency, which probably wasn't a real good idea. But somehow they got away with that, uh, with that robbery. They took their satchel of money. And they decided, well, we'll get into the whiskey business. They went to a place called Candleton, West Virginia, where the whiskey trade was already um, controlled by the Italian mob. But that didn't daunt them. They thought, well, we, we, can, uh, we can make our way here. So they picked out one Italian they thought they needed to knock off. And they went to his house, and, and Troy went to one door, Elias went to the other. Unfortunately, the Italian had been tipped off, so he was waiting with his pistols. And as they came in the front and back door, he shot them both, and they shot him, and all three were killed. <laughs> that really broke Devil Ants' heart. These are their um, uh, gravestones right next to his um, statue that you've seen. Uh, that happened in 1911, uh, a good bit after the feud. The feud ended in, in 1890 really for for all intents and purposes. That's when the McCoys and Hatfield started fighting each other, though I go on to follow Johnson getting arrest, arrested by Dan Cunningham, uh, Cap Hatfield murdering uh, some other uh, McCoy-sided people uh, during another election day in 1896. This is Ellison Mounts, the illegitimate son of Ellison Hatfield, uh, the veteran who was stabbed uh, way back in 1882. And uh, he is captured and tried for the death of Alifair uh, this is the gallows in uh, Pikeville, Kentucky. Public hangings had been um, banned for three decades, but the elders of Pikeville said, we're going to make a statement. We want to show that this kind of feuding can't go on anymore. And so um, this is technically not a public hanging. They built a fence down here. You can see it, right? No. Yeah. But they built it in a bowl where everybody could see this, and they hung Ellison Mounts right there in 1890. This is a... a, a Gravestone of Calvin McCoy, the, the brother or, or son of Randall uh, and, and brother of Alifair that was uh, killed in 1888 on that uh, New Year's Day. It now rests, you know, if you th think things are maybe less complicated now, it now rests on property owned by John Vance, a descendant of Bad Jim Vance, the meanest Hatfield. So the McCoy, the, all the McCoy graves are right there on, on John Vance's property today. 
And John Vance is somewhat cantankerous, doesn't like people coming up to look at the graves. But I thought, you know, I needed to do it as a historian. I needed to, to drive up there and see it. And uh, he's got a very steep driveway, and I'm driving a 1993 Volvo station wagon at the time. And he's on a, on a, a bend in the road where coal trucks are speeding by in either direction. And uh, I go by there and look up that, that uh, driveway and think, gosh, I, you know, I don't know if I can get up there. So I turn around and come back by a second time, I chicken out. And the third time, I, I, I realize that if I don't go up this time, I really am going to chicken out and, and i got to go home. So I drive up that uh, driveway, and it's kind of dark and creepy up there. There are two houses in the shadows, and I get up there and think, I really don't want to be here. I'm kind of scared of this guy. So I start to turn around to get out there, and just as I'm turning around, I see a guy walking down the sidewalk towards me. And I realize I'm not going to be able to get out until, uh, you know, without sort of talking to this guy. So I hop out of my car and very respectfully introduce myself. And the first question he asked me is if I'm a McCoy. And uh, I guess I didn't get shot at again, so I guess I gave him the right answer. I'm not a McCoy. But, uh, you know, I, I told him what I was doing, and he ended up being a pretty nice guy. Um, there he is. That's John Vance. And now on a, a later trip, he's taking me inside. He's showing me the plot of, of his land, and he's showing me that he doesn't think those uh, gravestones are where they were originally, that when they leveled the area to build his house back in the 50s, he thinks they moved those gravestones. Uh, now we're at the back of the property, and here I am with, um, when I made skeletons on the Zahara, uh, this production company uh, out of uh, California came with me, and we made a two-hour documentary for the History Channel. So I invited them to come back in uh, with me to, uh, to film, to do a documentary of the Hatfield-McCoy feud. I figure if I'm going to be down there uh, finding all these people to talk to and this information, we want to document it in every possible way. So we made that sizzle reel, took it to the History Channel, and the History Channel said, we love it, but uh, we're, we're not really commissioning documentaries right now. We want to make a reality show. <laughs> so I think my next picture, remember that guy back on that ATV, Scotty May, <laughs> clean shaven? That's Scotty May today. And he, he's one of the stars of the reality show. And this is just a couple weeks ago in Huntington, West Virginia, um, where, uh, where I was signing books. Scotty, Scotty likes to come with me. I didn't know that he was going to bring his pistol with him into the bookstore. As you can see, it tucked there into his, his, his vest. Uh, that's a real pistol. They all carry that kind of stuff. And uh, this, uh, to, to one side, is Dakota McCoy. She came out. And on the other side is her, her good friend, who's a Hatfield. That's a Gary Larson cartoon. You can see these monsters are pouring McCoys into the Hatfield jar to see what will happen. <laughs> and I, I love that. You know, that's, that's just how the Hatfields and McCoys entered our, our sort of, um, uh, our, you know, culture. Um, they became a legend and something we just knew, you know, you could say somebody's feuding like the Hatfields and McCoys, and it was funny, and, but we didn't really know a whole lot about it. Uh, and, and so when I set out to write this book, um, I did it for personal reasons, to reconnect to the state, and because I thought it was a great story and there was material that, that needed to be gathered and it needed to be retold in a compelling way. But I had no idea if there'd be any interest in it. I feared that everybody would go, oh, the Hatfields and McCoys, you know, that's kind of a cliche. I'm not interested in it. Well, then the miniseries came along, and as I was researching, I learned that uh, the Hatfields and McCoys had gotten together in after 9-11 and signed a peace treaty. They had. They wanted to show that in the face of an attack on American soil by an outsider, even the Hatfields and McCoys would come together and, and, and bond and, and band together to fight. And one of the leaders of that was a guy named Rio McCoy, who's from Waynesboro and uh, was a past mayor of Waynesboro. Uh, and he has a son who's in the Special Forces who went to Iraq and is right now in Afghanistan. So they made that statement, and that led me to start thinking, you know, what's important about this feud? Why, why is it interesting to retell? Why is there a sudden interest with this miniseries and a new book and, you know, um, marking the sites and a reality show? Well, to me, the important thing here is, you know, we have all this violence, and it's the first thing we see and, and think about. But if you put the violence aside for a moment, uh, you have a Scots-Irish family, you've got an English family with deep roots, they're, they're out on the frontier. There's not much law enforcement. These are freedom-loving people, liberty-loving people, and they're self-reliant. They're, to this day, they're, they're that way. Scotty May is carrying a pistol, you know, and, and they, they all are. But uh, 
But underneath it, I think there's something uh, that, that, that we see about Americans, about this sort of fierce, li liberty-loving people. And sure, this thing spun out of control and you had the violence, but I think this is part of our American roots story. It was people like these that, that came to America, and I think a lot of our, our roots come from that. And when you do the gut check, why are we sending soldiers abroad to fight now, to die on foreign soil? It's because we believe in a lot of the, the same things that the Hatfields and McCoys believed in. And, uh, you know, as you know, a disproportionate amount of the military armed forces come from places like Appalachia and from families like these. So I think that's one of the reasons why we are, are currently maybe fascinated uh, by what kind of message the, the feud might have for us. Of course, they don't really feud that much anymore. They're, they're more into tug, tugs of war. Uh, and, and that's a Hatfield-McCoy tug of war. And just uh, uh, two weeks ago, I was in Huntington, West Virginia, uh, for a, uh, this is where some of the, um, the documentary that, that I was in, that the History Channel did, that went along with the miniseries where some of the reenactments were, were done, and they did some more of the reenactments. This whole line right here is Hatfields, and on the other side is the McCoys. Uh, and the Hatfields lost again on this one. I, I, I've been to several of their family reunions, and the Hatfields lose the tug of war a lot, but they won it this year. But they, they're really fun to be with. Uh, this, is, uh, this was my very first speaking engagement for this tour, so now we're kind of bringing it full circle here, and I, I love it that... This is a topic that appeals to people. I spoke in the Grease Bays uh, at the Exxon at Three Chopped in Patterson. And I, I, I love Jim McKenna and, and, and the family there for um, bringing culture into the Grease Bays. They do it quarterly now. Uh, and, and, and this is a story that we can share at the Exxon or at the, at the, in the hallowed halls of the Virginia Historical Society. And, um, and, and I think it's really a, a great thing. Um, so I, I thank you for um, being here with me tonight and letting me tell you about the, the feud and my research. And I'd, I'd be happy to um, answer some questions as, as long as we have some time and sign books afterwards. And we have a question in the back over here. An interesting uh, story and well presented. Uh, in the course of, of doing all of this, the researching and the writing, did you uh, have some great surprises that came to you in the, while I, doing it? I would say getting shot at was a great surprise. <laughs> um, well, uh, yes. Um, there were a lot of things I didn't you know, know or expect. I didn't know any of the family. And so to be um, taken into the family in, in the way, uh, into both families the way I have, to, to attend their uh, uh, family uh, reunions, to see how sprawling the families are and the complexity of the families and the different levels of, um, uh, of what they believe and what they've heard, you know, to hear all that. I, I just love getting in and, you know, you, you go and listen to them tell their stories and 99% of what they tell you is not right. You know, because it's oral tradition, and they've heard all the oral tradition, you know, and, and, and the histories that have been written have been incorporated into their traditions. But there's often this little gem, there's this little diary that somebody has, or there's a, a, a bit of detail, you know, like a, a rock house that somebody's grandfather sh showed them, that their grandfather showed them, that is the real thing. They've been coming there for a long time. Um, those kind of things I thought were great. Um, discovering Dan Cunningham, who's barely in any history, but who played a prominent role going down there arresting McCoys and then arresting Hatfields uh, was really, uh, you know, sort of a revelation. And to be able to make, put him in his proper place, I think, in the feud history was a lot of, of fun, something I enjoyed. Um, the, the, you know, learning about Devil Lance's moonshining operation, something that has never been out there before, was great. So, um, yeah, I, I think there were a lot of great surprises along the way. And, and um, uh, I'm really pleased that I was able to gather a lot of this history, um, you know, now. And it, it always, I'm always kind of amazed when I go to different places. You know, the, the Long March, one of the seminal uh, pieces of, of modern Chinese history, uh, there's a lot of stuff there that really hasn't been documented, you know. Um, so it, it's really, for me, one of the, the really fun parts of, of writing books is, is going to these places and, and discovering that, that real history that's still out there. 
Has your research created some clarity for the two families to the actual facts of what took place? Yeah, um, good question. Uh, it, it's created some clarity. Some of them hate me, and some of them, <laughs> no. I've, I've, uh, well, the McCoys are really happy about my book, and I had no idea. You know, actually, I thought that people were going to criticize me for favoring the Hatfields because I was from West Virginia, and I spent more time with the Hatfields, you know, hanging out with them. We'd go out, you know, they'd have bonfires, they'd bring the moonshine out, get the guitars out, you know, and I hung out with them a lot. Um, but the first review came out and said that the book favored the McCoys, and that, that really surprised me. Um, but, and then, then the McCoys started coming out saying, finally, an objective book with the facts in it, because most of the hit histories have been written by the Hatfields, it turns out. And um, I guess it, that wasn't so clear to me, even as I read all the histories and everything, because there are some good objective histories, and I focused on that early reporting of the newspaper guys. The, the Hatfields hate that stuff, because um, these guys were uh, arrogant, and they were very critical of the people in the area, and, and I understand why they hate them, but these guys were good reporters, and they got a lot of good facts. So um, it's been really interesting. The Klein family uh, read it and thanked me. They were like, you know, thank goodness. And I think it was kind of healing for them to have just seen the miniseries, what happened to their ancestor, uh, to have this follow right on the heels of it, somebody, you know, getting the real history in there. I have Hatfields who really support me and really like me. I've got a small contingent of Hatfields who anything you say um, that's not to their dogma really makes them angry, and to the point where this guy, Dan Cunningham, uh, who was a U.S. Deputy Marshal and a private detective, he later was a strike buster. And, uh, and so they really hate this guy. And it just so happened that I was, in, I was doing one talk, and there was a slide up behind me. It just happened to be Dan Cunningham. And it went up on my Facebook page. And they seized on that, and they've been castigating me with it for championing this strike buster guy. You know, when really, I, you know, I talk about him during the feud, and he was a, a good guy. But uh, so um, it's been really interesting. Like, like I said, I think there's just more feuding about the feud, but I, more facts are coming out. More things are getting documented. The conversation is out there. So I think it's a good thing. You know, I think it's good that they're riled up and really passionate about their history. Yeah. What's your next project? Um, you know, I usually have something teed up for the next project, and having just done these three big uh, uh, history projects, research projects. Right now, um, I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm a producer of this reality show that's coming out, and, uh, and so I'm going to maybe spend a little time with that, and I, I'm contemplating doing a, a book about, of modern stories about the Hatfields and McCoys. Some of the stories that they have, you know, everybody's been shot at least once, and, you know, and, and I got one couple who's, you know, her mother shot his mother in a dispute over, you know, because his father was the sheriff and ran off her father who was beating his, her mother. And, you know, it just, it's, you can't believe it. And, and he was a sparring partner of Cassius Clay after being uh, the Navy boxing champion. You know, just stuff that, that is just great stuff. And, and he was also a strike buster, this guy. So I'm, I'm not sure, but I like that. And then I've got some stuff that's like, completely different that as I've done, you know, I've gone from Africa to China to the Hatfields and McCoys and in, in all likelihood it'll be another, you know, completely different sort of American uh, uh, history project that uh, a couple of which I have kind of eyed out. Yes, over. Um, I thought I had read somewhere along the line uh, connected with your, the feud, that there had been a medical diagnosis assigned to the Hatfields or the McCoys due to their extreme violence. Uh, is there yes. any truth to that? Yeah, there is. And, you know, again, another, well, you know, uh, another factor that told me, hey, this is going to be a fun thing to write about. Here's new scientific evidence. There's something called Von Hippel Lindau, uh, better known as VHL. And Vanderbilt University did some research on this and discovered that the McCoys um, got this um, condition that um, caused a uh, uh, tumors on the adrenal glands and made them, uh, could make them, certain members of the McCoy family, violently angry. So angry that they would, uh, you know, turn red in the face when they got mad and pass out, you know, break out in sweats. And, uh, and I was able to trace back through that guy Harmon McCoy's 
family. Lark McCoy was a, a really angry guy. One time his daughter sassed, sassed him off and started walking away, and he shot her through the hip. You know, he said, ah, oh, I didn't hurt her. I just got her, you know, shot her through the, the butt, really. He's like, you know, I didn't hurt her. And, uh, and, and, and he, he, he fought with his uh, daughter-in-law, and, you know, they would talk about it. And, and so I did, I did find um, a woman today, a McCoy, who has the condition, and she said, you know, uh, growing up, I was the one who was always fighting the boys in grade school. And even now, um, she's a professional and works. She says, sometimes I'll get so angry, I have to get up out of a meeting and walk out of the building. You know, so I think you can really trace this condition to, to the McCoy family and, and, you know, just another interesting factor there. Yeah. One more question. One more right over here. With all this wonderful research that you've shared with us, and you think about this huge country of ours, did you uncover any other feuds that could even begin to rival what we've heard about tonight? Well, you, you know, that, that's a good question. Um, this was a, a, a sort of time of feuds in eastern Kentucky. So there, there are a bunch of different families were feuding. So you have to ask yourself, or, you know, why this feud? Because there were more violent feuds. Um, there was more at stake. Uh, and this one, though, I think um, had a variety of factors that made it more interesting. I think those were pure power struggles over who was going to control the town, who was going to control. You know, in a lot of these places, and it still goes on today, there's corruption throughout the system, you know, so that if, you, if you're the judge in the town and if you're th this, that, and the other, you control everything, and, and they really do. So um, th there were power struggles going on amongst these families. But I think the Hatfield-McCoy feud um, had other things than just economics going on. You know, when you had the, the, the romance and you had that, um, the, the fight between Ellison and the brothers, uh, you had more sort of, you know, it's more Shakespearean or, you know, it, it's got the, 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 big, um, the big things in life, I think. It's more colorful for that reason. And you had people who were clearly not town people, people who were from the hills, who people in the big cities were fascinated by. And, of course, it really played into what, how Europe wanted to perceive Americans as bumpkins up in the hills. You know, so it, it really appealed to the Europeans and has been a fascination to Europeans. Um, so I think that's, this feud, um, it, it, it was just more interesting. You know, so there are various other, other feuds ar around, and including, you know, in Virginia. And, um, and then uh, you can follow some of that up into the years after this feud as well, when the trains, I, I think it's a fascinating period when uh, the, the train detectives, when the, when, like when Roanoke was a boom town and the, the trains were coming through these areas and they had to learn how to protect um, uh, people from criminals who were roving on the trains and from people who were raiding the trains. And, and, you know, and so you had a lot of these families up in the hollers uh, coming out, and, and um, it, it's just a fascinating time. But you can read, there are some books about those feuds in Kentucky. There are feuds down in Texas. There are various feuds, but this one just, for some reason, really captured our imagination. Thanks for capturing our imagination. Thank you. Thank you.